Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. What a somber and stirring experience that was. That was a gorgeous church. I'm amazed it hasn't been damaged by the 9-11 attacks. It's pretty impressive that St. Paul's Chapel was left virtually unscathed from that horrible day. It's even more incredible that it served as a home base for those incredible heroes as they continued to work in the days that followed that tragedy. There is one thing that I find interesting. Hmm. I wonder why the doors at this church are not as ornate as the ones at Trinity Church. That's a really good question. And the best answer I can come up with for you is that it starts with who the churches were built for and in turn who helped with their upkeep through the years. Back when the two churches were built, they were primarily for those who could afford to rent or buy their pews. So, older money and more financially based families attended Trinity Church, whereas newer money and more diversified wealth attended St. Paul's. It's also worth noting that much of the congregation followed the move uptown when the old St. Patrick's Cathedral opened near Prince Street. <clears throat> and once again, when the current St. Patrick's Cathedral, uh, which exists up on Fifth Avenue near Rockefeller Center, opened. Wow. It's almost like you're a tour guide or something. What can I say? I'm a wealth of untapped knowledge. I will say the Trinity Church doors were gorgeous, but I didn't recognize many of the scenes they were depicting. They were all various scenes from the Bible. Moments such as the expulsion from paradise, Jacob's dream, uh, the empty sepulchre, the uh, annunciation. I've lost you, haven't I? Yeah, just a little it's okay. It's basically pivotal moments from the Bible. That's what you need to know. After we see the show tonight, you'll recognize some of those images. Who knew theater could make religion make more sense? Ah, uh, that's the power of theater. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we are going to be discussing the well-known show, Jesus Christ Superstar. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. What's the word what's happening? We'll tell you. What's the word what's happening? Today we are going way back to biblical times as we follow the story of the final days of Jesus Christ and discuss the rock and roll musical Jesus Christ Superstar. This show, which was a part of the British invasion of the 70s, roared onto Broadway and brought the familiar story to audiences in a new way. 
It's a story that has been redone several times and been made into a movie as well as several TV and live TV versions. But before we can get into all that, we have to go way back to the beginning and set up the groundwork. Jesus Christ Superstar is a sung-through rock opera with music by Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Tim Rice. Loosely based on the Gospel's accounts of the Passion, the work interprets the psychology of Jesus and the other characters, with much of the plot centered on Judas, who is dissatisfied with the direction in which Jesus is steering his disciples. Contemporary attitudes, sensibilities, and slang pervade the rock opera's lyrics, and ironic allusions to modern life are scattered throughout the depiction of political events. Stage and film productions accordingly contain many intentional anachronisms. Initially unable to get backing for the stage production, the composers released it as a concept album, the success of which led to the show's Broadway on-stage debut in 1971. By 1980, the musical had grossed more than $237 million worldwide. Running for over eight years in London between 1972 and 1980, it held the record for longest-running West End musical before it was overtaken by Cats in 1989. The songs were written and conceived as an album musical before the musical was created and staged. In July 1971, the first authorized American concert of the rock opera took place in front of an audience of 13,000 people at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's Civic Arena. In August 1971, MCA Records executive David Skepner reported that MCA had been investigating and shutting down 21 unauthorized productions in the U.S. to protect the rights of London-based Leeds Music who owned the musical. Producer Robert Stigwood, who was assembling an authorized touring company, called these unsanctioned groups, quote, outright pirates, end quote, stressing that he would continue to protect his rights by relentlessly pursuing legal action. The musical opened on Broadway on October 12, 1971, directed by Tom O'Horgan at the Mark Hellinger Theater, the show closed on June 30th, 1973, after 711 performances. The production received mixed reviews. The bold casting of African Americans as Judas was lauded, but reviewer Clive Barnes from the New York Times said the real disappointment was not in the music, but in the conception. The show was nominated for five Tony Awards, including Best Score, but one none. The Broadway show and subsequent productions have been condemned by a few religious groups. Tim Rice was quoted as saying, It happens that we don't see Christ as God, but simply the right man at the right time at the right place. Some Christians considered such comments to be blasphemous. The character of Judas, too sympathetic, and some of his criticisms of Ju Jesus offensive. The musical's lack of allusion to the resurrection of Jesus has resulted in criticism similar to that of fellow musical Godspell, which also did not clearly depict the resurrection. At the same time, some Jews claimed that it bolstered the anti-Semitic belief that the Jews were responsible for Jesus' death, 
by showing most of the villains as Jewish, Caiaphas, and the other priests, Herod, and showing the crowd in Jerusalem calling for the crucifixion. The musical was also banned in South, South Africa for being irreligious. A 1972 production of the rock opera was banned in the Hungarians, Hungarian People's Republic for distribution of religious propaganda. Superstar opened at the Palace Theatre in London in 1972. This production was more successful than the original production on Broadway, as stated earlier, running for eight years and becoming the United Kingdom's longest-running musical at the time. It would then begin being produced around the world. First stop, Sweden, followed by Australia, Yugoslavia, Paris, Dublin, Mexico, Spain, Peru, and Singapore. The show then returned to North America for two separate tours covering the entirety of the continent. In 1977, the show had its first Broadway revival, running from November 23, 1977 to February 12, 1978. In 1992, a North American touring revival of Superstar starred Ted Neely and Carl Anderson reprising their respective Broadway and 1973 film roles as Jesus and Judas, receiving positive reviews for their performances. Originally expected to run for three to four months, the tour ended up running for five years. In 1996, the musical was revived in London at the Lyceum Theatre and ran for a year and a half. This production was revived on Broadway at the Ford Center for the Performing Arts in 2000. It opened to mixed reviews and ran for 161 performances. It was nominated for a Tony Award for Best Revival of a Musical, but did not win. A new production of Jesus Christ Superstar was mounted in 2011. This moved to the La Jolla Playhouse later in the year and transferred to Broadway. This is the production we will be focusing on in this episode. So, this is as good a place as any to introduce our design team. Music by Andrew Lloyd Webber, lyrics by Tim Rice, directed by Des Mackinoff, choreography by Lisa Shriver, scenic design by Robert Brill, costume design by Paul Taswell, lighting design by Hal Binkley, sound design by Steve Canyon Kennedy, and video design by Sean Neuvenhuis. The show would arrive at the Neil Simon Theater on March 22, 2012, and would play for 116 performances until closing on July 1, 2012. That season, it would receive two Tony nominations. So, let's travel to the famed city of Jerusalem, where our story awaits us. The story starts with Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve apostles who worries that the followers of Jesus are getting out of control and may be seen as a threat by the Roman Empire, who might harshly suppress them. The other apostles anticipate going to Jerusalem with Jesus and ask him about his plans, but Jesus tells them not to worry about the future. 
Mary Magdalene tries to help Jesus relax. Judas tells Jesus that he should not associate with Mary because a relationship with a sex worker could be seen as inconsistent with his own teachings and be used against him. Jesus tells Judas that he should not judge others unless he is without sin. Jesus then reproaches the apostles and complains that none of, none of them truly cares about him. Mary Magdalene tries to reassure Jesus while anointing him with oil. Judas angrily says that the money spent on oil should have been used to help the poor. Jesus answers that they do not have the resources to end poverty and that they should be glad for what comforts they have. Meanwhile, Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, assembles the Pharisees and priests. Like Judas, they fear that Jesus' followers will be seen as a threat by the Romans and that many Jews might suffer the consequences. Caiaphas concludes that, for the greater good, Jesus must be killed. As Jesus and his followers arrive exultantly in Jerusalem, they are confronted by Caiaphas, who demands that Jesus disperse the crowd. Jesus, instead, greets the happy crowd. Then, Simon the Zealot suggests that Jesus lead his mob in a war against Rome and gain absolute power. Jesus rejects this, stating that none of his followers understand what true power is. Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, has a dream in which he meets a Galilean and then receives the blame for the man's violent death at the hands of a mob. Jesus arrives at the temple and finds that it is being used as a marketplace. Angered by this, he drives everyone out. A group of lepers ask Jesus to heal them. Their numbers... Their number increases, and overwhelmed, Jesus rejects them. Mary Magdalene sings him to sleep. While he sleeps, Mary acknowledges that she is in love with him, and it frightens her. Conflicted, Judas seeks out the Pharisees and proposes helping them arrest Jesus, believing that Jesus is out of control and that Jesus himself would approve of his action. In exchange for his help, Judas is offered 30 pieces of silver. Judas initially refuses, then accepts when Caiaphas suggests that he can use the money to help the poor. We begin Act 2 with Jesus sharing a Passover meal with his disciples, where they get drunk and pay little attention to him. He remarks that, for all you care, the wine they are drinking could be his blood and the bread his body. He asks them to remember him, then frustrated by their lack of understanding, he predicts that Peter will deny him three times that night, and that another one of them will betray him. Judas admits that he is the one who will betray Ju Jesus, and saying that he does not understand why Jesus did not plan things better, and leaves. The remaining apostles fall asleep, and Jesus retreats to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He tells God his doubts about whether his mission has had any success and angrily demands to know why he should continue and suffer the horrible death that awaits him. Receiving no answer, he realizes that he cannot defy God's will and surrenders to God. Judas arrives with Roman soldiers and identifies Jesus by kissing him on the cheek. When Jesus is brought to trial before the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas demands to know if he calls himself the Son of God. And Jesus responds merely, that's what you say. Anas says 
that this is sufficient evidence, and Caiaphas sends him to Pilate. Meanwhile, Peter is confronted by three people to whom he denies that he knows Jesus. Mary observes that Jesus had predicted this. Pilate asks Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. Jesus again answers, that's what you say. Since Jesus is from Galilee, Pilate says that he is not under his jurisdiction and sends him to King Herod. The flamboyant King Herod asks Jesus to prove his divinity by performing miracles, but Jesus ignores him. Herod angrily sends him back to Pilate. Mary Magdalene, Peter, and the apostles remember when they first began following Jesus and wish that they could return to a time of peace. Judas is horrified at Jesus' harsh treatment. He expresses regret to the Pharisees, fearing that he will forever be remembered as a traitor. Caiaphas and Anas assure him that he has done the right thing. Judas throws down the money he was given and storms out. He curses God for manipulating him and commits suicide. At Jesus' trial, Pilate attempts to interrogate Jesus, but is cut off by a bloodthirsty mob which demands that Jesus be crucified. He tells the mob that Jesus has committed no crime and does not deserve to die, but to, dis- but to satisfy the mob, he will have Jesus flogged. Pilate pleads with Jesus to defend himself, but Jesus says weakly that everything has been determined by God. The crowd still calls for Jesus' death, and finally Pilate reluctantly agrees to crucify Jesus. As Jesus awaits crucifixion, the spirit of Judas returns and questions why Jesus chose to arrive in the manner and time he did, and if it was all part of a divine plan. Jesus is crucified recites his final words, and dies. Jesus' body is taken down from the cross and then buried into a near cave to the mountain where he died. The The end. Now let's discuss the parts of the show that we liked or maybe could use a little love. I always sing that intro, do a wow. Or at least the last ten episodes you do. Yeah. So, this is a very powerful show, very iconic. uh, Particularly for anybody who's of religious background. And I I should specify for anybody in particular of Christian and even Jewish background. Um, You know... Um, being someone who was brought up Southern Baptist, I mean, I know this story. I didn't have to see the show to know this story. I knew the story, you know. Um, I think, speaking for you, I guess, you not coming from such a religious background, there were probably moments where you're like, I don't understand. And I was like, oh boy, well, <laughs> yeah, let, well me, let me pull out the playbook here and explain what's happening. <laughs> well, I feel like the show is written in such a way that, you know, you have to know the the what's it called the passion yes this is the passion it's the passion play yes yeah so you have to know the passion play in order to get the details of the story because they kind of 
They don't go into extreme detail about the passion. They go into more nuances about Jesus and Judas's it's relationship. It's like the highlight reel kind of thing. Exactly. And so for me, it definitely... Um, I was a little lost the first time I... Well, when we saw it, but then after I had asked questions and made more sense of the story mm-hmm. of the passion. I was like, oh, okay. And I was able to appreciate um, the nuances that were happening between Judas and uh, Jesus's relationship. And I would even go a step further and say that the world in which this show was created was a much more religious world. I don't think there's as much presence of religion today. As there was in 1970. As there was in 1970. And I know that kind of sounds weird, but I feel like more people were aware of the story or familiar than they are today. Um, and so, I mean, that's the thing is you, there are very notable, not only people, but moments in the story. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that the, the whole uh, Peter denying Jesus three times, Judas meeting Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, but identifying him with a kiss is like incredible because there's a line in the Bible that says, "Why would you, you know, why why are you betraying me with a kiss? Why betraying me with a kiss? Why would you betray me with love?" Mm-hmm. You know, um, Jesus has already pointed out that he knows that Judas has betrayed him. So why would you show love and affection and still betray me? Like, you know, um, there's these great moments of, of parabolism that exist. Um, and they've been put into the show in a brilliant way, and and also like these these important moments, um, the turning over of the t- of the tables in the market within the temple. You know, this is my father's house, and he, and it's just and 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 in the Bible, it's listed that he came into the the temple to pray, and he found that it was a market, and he was flipping well, tables. And in the musical, I mean, it's just amazing. Like, there's electric guitars and everything, and he's going nuts. And that, I don't think that's a modern interpretation, but, you know, a modern audience looks at it, and it's like, whoa, this dude is losing it. And it's like, well, no, no, that's in the Bible. He went in and was like, you're disrespecting my father's house. See, one thing I'm going to say about this, and maybe it's, um, you know, an unpopular opinion, um, but for someone who doesn't have such a strong Christian background, it made the story more real. Because in mm-hmm. so much of my life, in hearing about the stories of the Bible and the stories of Jesus, it sounds like it. the way it comes off is that Jesus was... Everyone knew from the moment he was born that he was more than just a normal human. Yes. But... We know during history at this time, especially because we knew that there was something special about Jesus, but maybe not knowing exactly what, because there is that thing of faith that comes into it. And, um, you know, the uh, Jewish belief that he's not the Messiah. He might be a Messiah, but not the Messiah. Like, so it goes to show that he was a regular man. Um, this, sh- this story shows... Th- it a little bit more in a realistic way of how we would see him, not how we see him after the fact. Does that make sense? Like we yes, see it. Yes, we in, see it pre-crucifixion. Yes, so we we. So see you were able people, to see the people that were picking him apart. That were that were. Yes, because you can see you can sympathize a little with Judas, where he's like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be consorting with. 
you know, street workers and things like that. Well, and it's I like, well, but was... you should. This is okay. Well, you shouldn't be spending money on things like oil now. We should be helping the poor. You should be happy for what we have. We can't end poverty. And well, and the, I think not even that. I think what it just really does, I, I mean, for me personally, it humanizes both Jesus and Judas mm-hmm. in a way that I was able to view them as people and not as these um, people in a story. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many attachments to who Jesus is and who Judas is um, based on thousands of years. I don't know, hundreds, thousands, 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 thousands of years later, you know, and there's there's so much placed on that. But in viewing it through this scope, you can see them as people and see how things could play out as humans do rather than like human to human reaction rather than see rather than having the faith put into it and told you how to feel. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Um I thought this show was also just like we've been saying it's an interesting retelling or take on the story of the last days of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's it's important to notice that it's the last days, it is the passion, but we don't actually get to see the resurrection. We obviously don't see the 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 miracle working being done beforehand. We don't see him heal Zachary the blind or anything like that. We, we just get that rock star ending. Yes. Um you know, and, and again, if you are familiar with religion, you get to see things like the palm leaves being laid in front of him as he makes his way into town, um, which is what Palm Sunday is about. That's why it's called Palm Sunday. It's when he entered Jerusalem and they laid the palm leaves from the walk on. Um, and the score is iconic as well. I mean, everybody knows the score you know that bum 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 you know like every doesn't matter what you believe in you hear that and you're just like i know exactly what song that is you know I, that that is up there with wicked and phantom of the opera and cats and i just named three andrew lloyd webber musicals you know oklahoma all that stuff. You just you hear that opening number of Jesus Christ Superstar, and you immediately know what it is. Mm-hmm. And this is a there. I've got a friend of mine named uh, Chris Dokus, and um, his mom is a big fan of this. But this show just gets in your head, and it's it's that. What do they call them? Earworms. Yeah, it's an earworm. So I love the update to the staging and style of the show. This production in particular, especially with the use of the set lights and video, it felt like a very modern version of the show because at some point some of the music or whatnot can feel a little dated and I feel like they really brought this show into the 21st century. Yeah, they definitely made it feel like a rock concert. Yes. So that you could get that feeling of of this is a a rock star. This is someone that the people have put on a pedestal. Yeah. And with that we should probably just dive into it. So the set... The set was very industrious and bare, um, like lots of scaffolding, metal, like yeah. the metal stairs and things like that. Yeah, it definitely looked like um, a concert set. Yes. Um, I'd say that concert meets warehouse kind of thing. It, did, it didn't look very furnished or, I, I, I don't know, um, what's the word I'm looking for, like, um, dressed. Dressed. Yeah, yeah. It, it still looked like it was being built. But I will say, I also love the great use of the video screens to help communicate the story. Uh-huh. Um, and the asides as well. Like when, when Judas would have these aside moments, you know, th- there would also be stuff communi- 
syndicated up on these video screens in different formats or um, when they were showing there was like a video there were moments where they had Jesus on this video screen but it was like an old billboard in Times Square because it wasn't like a crystal clear video like we would think now mm-hmm. but that like it was grainy, yeah, but it, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the word I'm looking for, you know, because I was like, it, it looked like it was made of bars, because th- that's what it like was. It almost looked like it, the whole screen was made of light bars, and they were timed to make up his face and move. But it was his, it was a video screen. Um, but mm-hmm. pixelated is the perfect, perfect word. Um, I loved that during the crucifixion song, Jesus Christ Superstar. You know, yes, we had the screens going everything and all the rock star elements that we expect. I mean, it is that song. Um, the There was an extension of the stage that came out over the audience. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. And Jesus, like, came out over the audience on it. And then Judas ran up on it to, like, sing to him. But, of course, Judas was dead. This was This was Judas commenting on something that he not necessarily was present for. So I really love the fact that like Jesus was being led. Um, I don't know how to explain it. He was being led around stage, but then he was on this platform and, and it extended out over the odd, like it extended from the stage over the audience. I thought that was really, really cool. And then the last thing I mentioned about the set is I love that the cross was made of lights. And and that'll come up later, but I thought that was that only enhanced the industriousness of um, the set. And it could have been made of steel, but they chose lights, and we're going to get into that later. Right. Well, and I think that um, definitely now's a good time for us to transition into talking about the costumes. Um, what I loved is they are... They're very flowy and very similar to the silhouette <clears throat> of the time period, like um, very natural fibers, very lightweight for the desert, but the way that they were styled looked very like modern. Um, and it was kind of like... Um, it was a great mix of modern and classic. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, um, it had the shapes that you'd expect from, you know... From the biblical times. From the biblical times, but they were kind of, like, cinched in ways that was like, oh, we're going to tuck it here, and it's going to make it a little more modern, made it a little bit more of a rock star feel. Right. um, By having them just a little bit... It wasn't your grandmother's church play, but it also wasn't, you know, full-on Hamlet 2. Yeah. And if you get that reference, 10 points. If you don't get that reference, you should definitely watch the film. Um, yeah, I, I think you're really, really uh, hitting the mark on that. Hey, construction outside our door. Um, um, I feel like everyone kind of had a, their own thing. Hi. Yeah. So, like, you had... Pontius in this beautiful smoking jacket and like this violet color. And then you had Herod in this beautiful flowing red robe and very flamboyant. And then you had the Pharisees that were in like black leather. And yeah, I, I, I'm not going to go as far to say like black leather, almost bordering BDSM kind of thing, because that's not exactly what they were. It was black leather. Um, and then they, and they all had long beards. Mm-hmm. 
And that whether they were real or not, they had long beards. But they were all, all of these key characters not only had signature colors, but signature cuts to their costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was really brilliant. And I feel like it tied back into how connected or tied to the crucifixion of Jesus they were. Right, because you had the Pharisees that were literally like bound up and right. tight and their costumes had lots of, you know, different parts that, you know, kind of grounded them to the situation, but then you had Like King Herod who was flowing and, you know, he mm-hmm. Well and I also think the colors also come into play as well because um Pontius Pilate actually wanted to have a change of heart. And that's why he has the violets mm-hmm. because he's a mixture of that red anger whatnot with the blue of the side. Well, he, he didn't want to crucify him. He did it in order yeah. to quell the masses. Exactly. And so and he said, like, I have no reason he's committed no crime, but to quell the masses. And that's why he's in Violet, because it is that mixture of the anger and blood on his hands with the sadness that he feels knowing that he just crucified an innocent man. Yeah. So the other two things, the last two things that I want to mention at least is I love that um, at the end Jesus is in a loincloth when he's crucified. I know that seems like a weird thing, like, okay. But when they hoist him up on the cross in that loincloth, it just creates that image that's known around the world. Mm-hmm. You just you just have that, that, that image of, of Christ on the cross and that's literally what he looks like if you have ever been in a Catholic household or something and seen the crucifix that's that image mm-hmm. you know it's not Jesus in a robe or being from Utah we've all seen the the portrait of Jesus in the I'll say the red robes you know mm-hmm. that's not what the iconic image I'll say of the passion is so yeah, 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 crucifixion. Thank you, yeah. So I love that they did that. And so we got, you know, there were these moments throughout the show that we got these... Iconic. Like tableaus. Yeah, exactly. And then the other person I want to mention is Mary, who was in this beautiful gold dress, which I think is very significant because gold is pure. And yes, Mary does is not pure from her background. But through the teachings of Christ and by coming to Christ, she becomes pure once again and she devotes mm-hmm, herself. It and goes to that idea that you can be absolved of your sins. Exactly. Exactly. And so I thought that was a really clever choice and I was like, I see what you did there. I so. can dig it. Um, I think now is the time to talk about the lights on the cross. Okay. So, the, Well, let's, let's just talk about the lights in general. So the lighting was fantastic for the show. I think we mentioned a concert... As like a rock show. Yeah. You know, it, it really was like a whole rock show experience. Um, and, okay, I can't I can't escape it anymore, so let's talk about the cross. <laughs> so what was cool about the cross at the end of the show being made up of light is that, you know, the show ends with Jesus on the cross. And by having this somber moment... And the light and the cross being made up of lights, you also got this... First, you had this image of Jesus on the cross, but then as the play winds down and the lights dim, then you get this beautiful shadow and image of a man on the cross. Mm -hmm. 
So we don't, you're not just looking at that said actor up on the cross. Now it's just almost like the figure that everyone knows the world around. Regardless of what you believe, if I showed you this picture, you'd go, oh, that's Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. And that, and I thought that it created this beautiful, like it was just a beautiful image I'd never seen. Instead of lighting from the front, lighting from behind and creating that image. So I thought that was really, really clever. Well, yeah, and it was supposed to show that the amount of light that pours behind uh, to propel the idea that it's this, you know, it's the light, it's the good parts, it's the, I can't think of the word I want, but it basically the light propels the idea forward. Yes. The man, the idea, and here we go, it's right. forward. And, and, and one other thing I want to mention about the lighting, because I feel like the bulk of this is just, you know, it was a rock show. But the colors used at particular moments were really important. I seem to recall the Pharisees being in a deep red on top of the scaffolding. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very ominous. And that deep red mixed with the black costume was really important. That's something about when you see that on stage, that combination, you know, it's either passionate love or something like Sinister. evil. Yeah, exactly. Pontius being in purple and white. Like you mentioned, there's pure intentions, but there's also something else there. It's purple never reads as 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 it, pure. Right, there's something still there. Purple's like seduction. See, I see purple as a blend of two emotions, but maybe that's me because I'm a colorist. Like purple, purple is what you use when you want to combine a hot emotion and a cool emotion. Which, yeah, and well, that's fair. And so that's why, like, purple to me is not a settling color. It's meant to cat. It's it's one of the ones I feel like they don't use a lot. And it's meant to, because it's meant to put you on guard. Mm-hmm. And then Herod wasn't like these fun colors, like a casino. Because he was. He, he was meant to be just fun and this flamboyant, like, here we are. Welcome to King Herod's Palace of Wonder. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like... I think the show wouldn't have King Herod if not for the fact that historically he went, you know, King Herod was in the story. Right. King Herod is like is virtually like not anywhere else in the story. He makes like one or two like side appearances, mm-hmm. but really you could take him out and it's good. Except for the fact that, of course, historically there is a, uh, the passing of Jesus kind of thing. It's almost like the Officer Krupke line of stuff. Right. Um, and just another thing I want to say about the lights is I remember anytime we were in a place where a, like a scene from the passion was taking place, like when they go into the temple, when they, um, do the Hosanna, Hosanna song, whatever it is. Like I remember a very dusty white feeling. Yes. Um, which I think just allowed us to know where when time when events were taking place versus blinding white or blinding bright light for when we were in characters' heads. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Or after Judas had died, he had that more rock star glow. Well it was that yellow light they used for like Jesus Christ Superstar versus like the white it was that yellow you typically see in a rock concert. Yes, exactly. So I just, I thought that the use of light to let us know when we were in 
in an actual time and place versus... Like a mind, like an aside, a a soliloquy. mm -hmm. Yeah. they never once, like, they didn't have to sit there and say where they were at and all that jazz. They just transitioned and the lighting did a beautiful job helping to um, let us know where we were at. I agree. So we need to move on to direction. Overall, I thought it was a great job of marrying all the design elements and the communication of the message of the show was like it was there. We, we got it. Um, we've mentioned this. I think it was a brilliant modernization of the classic version of the show. You know, it is iconically Jesus Christ Superstar. The show is from the 70s. So how do you bring a show from the 70s all the way into the 2000s, 2010s, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot has changed. The story hasn't. The music hasn't. But the technology has. How do you, what do you do with that? Especially with an audience that is expecting a little bit more. And I thought the director did a really good job with that. Which is why I love the fact that they incorporated modern technology like cameras and video boards. And, and the words being placed on them to sh- to show the power of words, um, you know, and the use of handheld mics and moments for like soliloquies and such. Mm-hmm. It felt more at times like a media spectacle. Um, and as we were researching this and putting this together, I almost felt like perhaps this production was a little premature. Because in thinking about the ways or the interpretations of some of these directions, I was like, you know, a lot of this sounds more like today. A media spectacle, the power of words, you know. But I think it just goes to show you that that is a common theme that we as people have been dealing with for a very, very, very long time. Um, That's fair. And honestly, I mean, I don't know if this is the what I was supposed to get out of the show, but... Um, this gave me a good understanding of Judas and, um, like, of who he was as a person because as someone who's not a Christian, I didn't, you know, you hear Judas and you're like, oh, he's a, he's a betrayer, he's a bad person. Um, but it also goes to show that you, like, his humanity because he did care about Jesus. And it, I know you and I disagree with well, this. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> this, I, I, I don't want you to, uh, you or our listener, I mean, we are not anyone to sit there and speak on faith, but as I understand it, this is, I mean, this is an artistic interpretation. This is not the common accepted. Yes, well, and that's what I mean. Like, for me, as a not Christian, seeing this show actually made me want to read this part of the Bible. Good, yeah. Because it made me understand that Judas was just a human, and in many ways, he and Jesus, they were both just people, but it's what people do and their actions that can create lasting effects. And for me, it made this idea of being, like, there's something that's always thrown out, um, in religious communities be, as being Christ-like, right? Right. You want to be Christ-like. And for the longest time, I didn't understand what that meant. Um, and seeing this show helped me understand what that meant. Because it wasn't... It didn't mean to be exactly like Jesus. It meant to take these ideas that he was 
meant to take the teachings, the good ideas, the good works, and apply them in your life. Yeah. And even if you are a flawed being like Judas. Yes. And and so I think that, I don't know, it just made it very human for me. And in a lot of ways, I identified with Judas because he was someone who was having a crisis of faith. Which is a very natural human thing to have happen. Yes. Um, and so I think it, even though we've gone and made Jesus and everyone involved into rock stars, essentially, in this version, it does a better job of humanizing them, which also drives home the point that, like, we're all just people, and it is our actions that speak to our character. Yes. That's so. a good point to make. So the last thing we need to cover in this is obviously the music. Mm-hmm. I mean... It's iconic. Hey, Zana, superstar, driving banana cars. Wow. Let me just combine all the songs. Um, yeah, it's iconic. It's brilliant. It's memorable. It's, it is Jesus Christ Superstar. Once you hear it, you can't get it out of your head. Um, I mean, I know you were singing the parody, Jesus Christ Superstar, driving around in his banana car. I know you were doing that all day yesterday. Oh, yeah, I went and listened to the soundtrack on my way to work. You're welcome. And then the minute you sang Hey, Santa Jose, I was like, that was a song I've been trying to remember uh, from my friend Dokus. You know, his, every time his mom would watch it, it would get in his head, and then he would just, like, show up when we were in college, and he'd just be like, hey, Andrew. And I'm like, what? And he's like, hey, Santa. And I was like, you son of a and all day, I'd just be walking around campus, Hey, Santa, Hosanna. You know. No, I think if you sing anymore, we're going to have to pay for copyrights. That's so. fair. Um, <laughs> the base of the Pharisees in this show. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it is early in the morning for us, so I have a very nice base. Good morning, and welcome to WBGH. Um you know, but this bass was incredible. And then you match that with the tenor of the other Pharisee. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had this really low bass. Like, it was incredible. Yeah. The, the vocal skills that were in this cast were phenomenal. Very much. The singing across the board was fantastic. In fact, I love going back to watch that Tony's performance. To see, I can't remember the name of the actor right now, but who played Judas just... I mean, this is their natural God-given talent. Like, that just blows my mind that they can wake up, warm up a little bit, and then boom, there it is. And I'm like, cool. That's amazing. Hey, thank you. You're worth the ticket price, you know? (laughs) So. The show has had several notable performers, including Tom Hewitt, Josh Young, Ben Breen, Tim Minchin, and Melanie C. So let's now talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. So theatrical impact. Um, it brought Jesus to the state. No, I'm kidding. It was um, a, I mean, it was a modern musical of Jesus. I mean, well, but we had Godspell before. Oh, I forgot about Godspell. Yeah, Stephen Schwartz beat, beat you to the punch. 
Um, but it was but shorts. it was an iconic score. Yes. And an iconic story. And I think, a very awesome name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was the second successful show from the Andrew Lloyd Webber Tim Rice collaboration. Um, so I think that's also worth noting because you know this isn't going to be the last time that we say that collaboration. There will be more. Yeah. Um, and and the other big the- uh, theatrical impact I think that's worth noting um, is it was part of the British invasion that occurred. So and and that's going to be coming up a lot more as we delve into. I mean, the British invasion was a big deal in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. Um, is not as present anymore today, though we do still get successful London transfers. Well, yeah, and I, I think and highly British, anticipated the, and successful. The British invasion was. The first time where it was like, hey, this is your American art form and we're going to crank it out and do it just as good, if not better. Well, and, yeah, they were, they were the ones creating the big success. And bringing it here and being successful. Yeah, they were, that um, was when they were creating the big successes. Yes, so I think that I wouldn't say that the British invasion is still happening by any means. But just because the British invasion isn't still happening doesn't mean we don't still get plenty of beautiful hits from the West End. Okay, because I was I was about doesn't to... happen for years and years and years and years. An invasion kind of is the start of a movement, and then it becomes super integrated. Because I was about to say, I'm like, I don't know, babe. The Tony Awards are coming, and you got shows like Six and the Lehman Trilogies, which are both West End transfers, and Hangman, and I was like, man, those have been really successful. But those aren't part of the British invasion. The British invasion is an event that happened, and here's why. Fair point. I concede five points to Hufflepuff. Thought Thank I'd you. never say that. But let's move on to the societal impact. So, in my educated opinion, and we know how well that is, mm-hmm. um, I think the societal impact is that it opened the theater to, to two kinds of audiences, okay? It opened it to the rock and roll generation of the 1970s, which we would maybe call the heavy metal generation. And I know that kind of sounds weird today because you're thinking, you know, heavy metal like corn or something, but this is more like the shout of the devil. You know. And then to a more modern religious audience. And it was an audience that was wanting to seek religion in a new way, not in their parents' or grandparents' way. Mm -hmm. So to be able to see the passion of the Christ in a rock and roll way, I think really entice a lot of younger Christians? Yes. And I think that is was very important and and poignant because that that kind of thing is going to come up again. Not necessarily religious, but, you know, in a way of bringing people in who are seeking certain ideas, certain messages, and and the theater finding a new, using a new medium or style to get them here. To get that point across. Okay. Which is something I think that's always done. You know... Mm-hmm. Using jazz or ragtime or whatever it may be. Right. Well, and I think especially the um, version we saw maybe didn't have a huge societal impact, but the show as a whole right. has well, right. a large societal impact. <clears throat> because, I mean, once again, I think as as we have progressed, as, as I mean, we even mentioned this earlier, I think that you have less r- presence of of organized religion when the show is written and I think you have even less presence today 
So I, I'm not so sure that as many people are familiar with the story that is Jesus Christ Superstar. Like the actual basis of the story. They're not uh, people like you who are like, I have a loose understanding, but when they see it, they're like, oh, I didn't know all that. You know what I mean? So that's kind of a harder thing to communicate right off the bat where 50 years ago, more people really did. That was something you grew up knowing at some form or the other. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I think having the ability to use a modern form of music to communicate such a well-known story. It, I mean, theater at the end of the day is storytelling. Yes. So to keep a story alive, to keep a story in the mainstream is important. And I think the show does a really good job of being able to do that. I'd be interested to see what the next revival of Jesus Christ Superstar looks like. Because it's going to get done again. So, but on that, with that note, is the show relevant? Again, in my learned opinion and scholarly. Though the music is forever iconic, I don't know that right now is the best time for a revival of this on Broadway. Um, I think there are more important stories uh, to be told at this time. Also, I feel that there are other works by Andrew Lloyd Webber coming down the pipeline that will surpass the show in priority of getting done on broad in a Broadway house, i.e. Cinderella is supposed to be coming this season. Mm -hmm. And... <clears throat> if what we have learned one thing a few seasons ago, there's only so much of one composer you want on Broadway. And Andrew Lloyd Webber was that composer. He had Sunset Boulevard, School of Rock, and Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. I mean, but well, I mean, Stephen Sondheim <clears throat> has multiple on Broadway. No, no, no. And, and, and that's true. But we might see multiple Stephen Sondheim this year because he passed. Andrew Lloyd Webber's still alive. But when, when Lloyd Webber had three shows going at once... How many shows remain? Mm -hmm. So I don't think now is the time. So Cinderella coming is fine, but I don't think Jesus Christ Superstar. Well, and I just is don't right. think that right now that's what um, audiences need is the passion story. Right. They need. We need to hear unheard voices. Well, that's what I mean. So with so with with a limited number of Broadway houses. This is not one that I think would make the, the top five in, in, when they're trying to pick shows to fill those houses. But that being said, this is an amazing touring show. This is an amazing regional show and even a great collegiate show. And I think the show needs to continue to be done at, at that level and around that area. There's no reason why it can't be. Even off-Broadway, even off-Broadway, it would be perfect, you know? Um, and I want to see what... I really want to see what younger artists can do with this material. With all the revivals and the reimaginings that are happening, I would really like to see, you know, it's been 10 years. What can someone do with this? So. As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. So we had the good fortune of getting to see the show twice. Well, Andrew got to see the show twice. Oh, I got to fair. see the show once. So um, we got to see it together once back in 2012 on Broadway, and then I got to see it uh, once in 2008 at Kingsbury Hall in Salt Lake City. So I'm going to start with my experience 
in 2008. The tour, the national tour, um, starring the one, the only, Ted Neely, ladies and gentlemen. He was great. He was really fantastic. Um, I feel like he's been playing that role since 1970-something, you know? Like, he's, he was he kept trucking. Well, after the show, uh, I don't remember how we got to where we were at, but we got there and we got to meet him. And he is a wonderfully nice man, though I'm concerned he might think he's Jesus a little. <laughs> um, but he, he is. He's very, very nice. And he met my mother and I and he shook our hand. But I'll never forget, like, he just shook our hand and we were like, thank you so much, you were wonderful. And he just looked right at me and he, like, cupped my hand and he just goes, thank you. You have a very beautiful soul. And I was like, okay. And then we got a picture with him. And I don't know, maybe that's just his nature, which is cool. He's very gentle. But seriously... The man, he had to be in his 50s. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's seen this show, the vocal like demand of Jesus Christ Superstar, of Jesus, you know? Oh my God, it is incredible. So to have, to have been playing that role for that long and st- still be able to do it that well. I mean, I was impressed. I was blown away. You know, the rest of the cast is very young kids, but here he is, and he's just like, I do this eight times a week, and it is no big deal. I mean, he was amazing. So, mm-hmm. hats off to Ted Neely. Um, now I want to go to Broadway. Now, I think we can both say we were both overall impressed. Yeah. And excited about the Broadway show. It was good. I was yeah. excited to finally be seeing the show on Broadway. I was not necessarily excited or thrilled or like this wasn't the show for me. Um, but I remember afterwards going, I actually liked that. Yeah. Um, meeting the cast afterwards was great because they were all nice. But there was one in particular that, that, that stuck out to me. So, let me see if I can do this fast. Blah. I studied musical theater. And at this time when I was studying musical theater... You know, we were being told, you got to, you know, if you really want to be successful, just keep in mind, you got to be in the best shape of your life. You got to be the best singer, dancer, actor. Like, that's what it's going to take to be on Broadway. Well, if you follow us on social media, I mean, I am not Mr. Ripped Six Pack, let me flex for you, Calvin Klein Jeans model. Oh, no, I'm Mr. I ripped up on a pack of Hostess Cupcakes and I model for them. Like... <laughs> I, I put dad bods to shame and then some. Um, and um, this is my sophomore year of my, my degree. So I was really having like some body image. Is that the one I'm going for? Body image? Yeah. You know, body confidence things. Anyway. Body image issues. Um, so I met the, this actor, Bruce Dow, who played King Herod. And he was a fluffier guy like me. And we were talking, and he, and just being casual as we were in the Kiss and Cry line, and um, I had mentioned I was studying musical theater, and he goes, oh, where? And we get into that. And I said, yeah, and I'm working really hard, and I would mentioned the, I'm trying to get in the best shape of my life so that I can da-da-da-da-da-da. And then he just stops, and he just looks at me, and he goes, 
why would you do that? And I said, well, my understanding is, you know, I've got to be the best singer, dancer, actor, be in the best shape, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, no, 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 no. Every day, there is like a dozen guys who get off the bus at Port Authority who look exactly the same, and they're all chorus boys, if they're lucky. You don't do a thing to change who you are because you are different. And you're going to stand out and you're going to get the work and you're going to have a career and yet da 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 da. Do not change. You are different. Embrace your, you know. It was the first time someone had told me it was okay to be different. It was okay to look different. It was okay that I didn't have to go down this same path that everybody was going down. And when I went back to school that following fall, that started me on the most successful semester of my collegiate career and like led to even more success that's when I really started to embrace who I was and characters who were like me and I found all these roles and I was like oh my gosh you know and I was like no one has ever told me someone who looks like me acts like me or whatever like this is a the way I am I can come to work on Broadway you know I was always told that I'm just not not yet. You know, you got to keep working. No, this guy told me, just said, you are perfect the way you are. Don't change because you're different. And different is important. And it was, it was, I, I mean, look, here I am, 30 years old. And, you know, no, I am not performing on Broadway. You know, if anyone's out there who's hiring, hey, what's good? But that has stayed with me. And I've come to pass that on to people and to really just ingrain that in my 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 ethos and whatnot of like I'm not going to look like that guy that guy that guy I'm gonna look like me and that's okay because we need people like me to make those people exist and vice versa well and I think we've definitely started to see a shift on Broadway um that Humans who look like real humans. Right. Exist. And just embrace all sizes, all bodies. We still have a long way to go, but, but we but started it. Bruce Dow, if you listen or you ever hear this, in 2000 and, uh, 2012, you met a chubby kid from Utah in the Kiss and Cry line on a Sunday matinee, and you forever changed my life. You were an actor that forever changed my life. So, theater is back, and, you know, we really hope you can join us soon. Just right here in a seat next to us. You'll be able to catch Jesus Christ Superstar somewhere near you, I'm sure. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and a patron of the show by getting your Backstage Pass. Information about our new Backstage Pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time... I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you.
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by U.S. Army Blues, The Zombie Dandies, Spinning Macabre, Man Bites Dog, and Billy Murray. <laughs>